Welcome to TechnoViews, a new series of interviews with major figures in the humanities and social sciences on topics at the intersection between technology, society and culture. And we're focusing mostly on Asia, but also the world writ large. My name is Gonzalo Santos. I'm an assistant professor here at the Hong Kong Institute of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Hong Kong. It's my pleasure to introduce Professor Dagmar Schaefer, who has been visiting uh, the Hong Kong Institute of Humanities and Social Sciences, a visiting professor here. She is the director of Department 3, Artifacts, Action and Knowledge of the Max Planck Institute of the History of Science in Berlin. And uh, we're going to have a conversation really about her research. I mean, she's one of the most distinguished scholars working on the history and sociology of China. And I thought one, uh, one good way to start this conversation is to start talking about your wonderful book, uh, The Crafting of the 10,000 Things, uh, Knowledge and Technology in 17th Century China, mm -hmm. right? published by the University of Chicago Press in 2011. The book was very well received. I mean, it got all kinds of different uh, awards, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you argue many things, you make many points, but I think one of the, one of the strong points that you make in the book, I thought, is that you, are, you show how at a certain point in the late Ming Dynasty, so we're talking really about the 17th mm -hmm. century, there started to emerge a series of publications and writings uh, that were describing existing practices uh, of knowledge and also of technology mm -hmm. and you know documenting very mundane things like you know technical procedures of extracting uh, raw materials and processing these raw materials and also the manufacture of you know goods that are used in everyday life mm -hmm. you know from things like uh, paper to ink you know one of the things that uh, that strikes me is that you know you argue that these writings you know uh, really reflect the flourishing of uh, a uniquely Chinese tradition of, uh, you know, uh, thinking about technology and writing about technology. So I think my question is, you know, what would you say are the sort of the main features of this emerging field of scholarly knowledge on uh, technology mm -hmm. in, the, in, in, the, in, the, in the Ming Dynasty period? Mm -hmm. Santo, thanks first for having me here. It's a real pleasure to be at the university and to having this interview with you. I'm really enjoying my time here very much. And thank you also for the nice summary of my book. I couldn't have done it any better. Um, the question you are asking is really a very important one, I think, in the field of the history of science. Um, one of the major issues that I was interested in this book is why a person in the 17th century who considers crafts an everyday issue, who sees it every day, once of a sudden becomes interested in writing about it. This seems like an obvious question probably to us today. However, in the culture that existed in this period in the 17th century, literati would usually not engage into such topics. So from this point of view, I think we have a really very exceptional and very nice example here to understand how societies and how individual societies and states probably engage with technology in ways others probably than ours or than in other historical periods. 
This is important, I believe, because the history of science and technology, and thus also our understanding what scientific and technological development actually means, how it comes about, how we can promote it, uh, what kind of implications it actually has, uh, requires a broader view than it actually has nowadays. So where can we get that view from? I think history is a very good source to look about to look at alternative perspectives. And uh, to add just one sentence to it, I see that the sciences nowadays, especially in Asia, or maybe also uh, in the non-Western world, if you want to use that framing, uh, they tend to see all scientific and technological development very path dependent. They have a specific perspective on how it is actually going to be and what it should be and what pathways are legitimate ones and justifiable ones and which ones are not, which sciences are important and which are not. And I think here history can really do some very important work. You mentioned uh, the writers mm -hmm. uh, in, our, in your response of, of some of these publications. And of course, you know, many of them were really minor sort of local, local officials. Uh, you know, who um, did not really have a distinguished career t to many extent. I think one of, the, one of the interesting things about the book is that you dig a little bit deeper into their motivations and to, into their biographical trajectories. Could you tell us a little bit about those motivations? I mean, what, what, uh, what made, uh, you know, minor local officials, such as the history of the famous uh, uh, Tian Gong Kai Wu, which is one of the publications that you focus on in the book. Um, you know, what, what made these officials start to uh, feeling the need to kind of uh, document, sometimes with painstaking detail, you mm -hmm. know, some of these technical procedures, what was going on in this period of time? So certainly, as we all know, their motivations were probably quite different for each and every of them. What we consider to be a minor official I think looks very different when you look from the person who writes about it. One of the basic explanations that history would give is this is a, a, a petty official who tries to make a point about how important he is and how he can advance innovation or how he can help society. And there is the ring, that rings certainly some bells and also really fits into the historical trajectory. However, I think if you look from the person himself, and Sung Yin-shing is a very nice example for that, then their motivations are probably a little bit different. So in the case of Sung Yin-shing, and I think he was not the only one in his, society, in his uh, era, he saw some very substantial truth in these processes. For him, they were uh, a regularity he could rely on, something that would open his eyes about like how nature functions, how society functions, which issues are really important in life. And this is also the perspective, the viewpoint from which he investigated the crafts. So he certainly made a point that he, pe other people should listen to him, as many other people nowadays too. But uh, the perspective from which he became interested in the craft and why he, why he valued them was from the perspective of that this is true, reliable knowledge, that this is an issue one should be more concerned about than his time actually was.
Who were the readers of this publication? Yeah. <laughs> he didn't have, have many readers. That right. is the easy answer yeah. to it. Uh, so his colleagues scorned him for trying to bring technology and cosmology together, so our universal claims to knowledge. And the book became only popular after it's been stripped, it was stripped off the cosmological content. And uh, people became more interested in how it transmitted the practices and the techniques. So by the 1700s or 1720s, or probably a little bit earlier, which, we, which I could not prove, the book market had this book as a kind of handbook or guidebook, which was useful to it. However, that still doesn't mean that the author initially thought this would be the purpose of his book. You mentioned a, a tension between technology and cosmology, mm -hmm. which came also, it's sort of very salient as well, in your wonderful public lecture that you gave on Tuesday at the, at the Hong Kong Institute of Humanities and Social Sciences. I mean, you're starting a new project. Mm -hmm. It's on a topic that it's very dear to you, uh, sericulture, uh, and you're documenting historical transitions mm -hmm. in the field of knowledge and technology of sericulture, yeah. right? And yeah, I mean, I'd like to ask you a lot of questions regarding these historical transitions, but perhaps I would start by asking you a question about, um, you know, why this interest in sericulture? Because I think you mentioned that this is a topic that it's very dear to you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, when was the first time that you started to become interested in sericulture? And, uh, you know, what did this interest do to, you, to your research? Mm -hmm. uh, in what new insights it brought to your research? Mm -hmm. I did actually not become interested in sericulture, but my professor made me study it <laughs> very early in my career. And uh, I believe at that point in time, I really did not understand the implications of doing this. So when Dieter Kuhn asked me to do some research <coughs> on the Ming Dynasty, uh, I did a very traditional study, I would say, on the history of technology and economic change um, through state manufacturing. So by that time, the, the government really took charge of uh, sericulture and textile production. And it's only in the last four or five years that I more and more realized that I've underestimated this topic and that I should go back to it to ask one of the, I think for me at the moment, very important questions in the history of science. How can we understand sciences and scientific development in, in regions historically that have historically developed differently to what we know has been a successful scientific change in Europe or in the modern world since the 19th century or the 20th century. And what would be a possible topic to study that because we certainly cannot stop uh, study everything. One of the, I think the sub questions that interests me, uh, which you can see also reflected in the name of my department, Artifacts, Action and Knowledge, is the way in which practices, but also the, the materiality of being is related to it. So if you look at Chinese culture, they identify very thoroughly, very deeply with sericulture. It's also, if, even if they would not identify with it, so the state and the government historically always engaged very strongly with uh, 
this sericulture production, it dominated life cycles, it dominated daily work, it was central to ritual politics and the like. They, uh, they also thought a, lo a lot with and through the way in which sericulture functioned. So my question was, when I look at scientific development and I think about the materiality of being at a certain place through time, how does the one influence the other? And that makes sericulture the perfect topic to think through these questions and how that changes in the scientific development and uh, in the context of of looking at scientific and technological development or the, the change of knowledge and how it impacts development mm, to the worse or to the better. Uh, there is so much documentation that has not yet been looked at thoroughly from this particular perspective. When did people think about sericulture in different way? How did they think about it in different way? How did that impact their idea about for instance, health, about time, about spatial context, for instance. And what of that did they consider important? Right, yeah. And, and one of the, the historical transition, I don't like very much the term transition, transition. but mm -hmm. uh, let's put it the, the shifts that occurred in yeah. the period that you are talking about, which is mostly the Yuan Ming you know, uh, shift and also the Ming-Qing kind of, you know, uh, you know, period. And you, you document a moment in which uh, we see that the field of sericulture is still largely built around a very cosmological framework mm -hmm. in which the silkworm, of course, plays a central role. And, and, uh, and we have all these kinds of publications and illustrations that you know highlight the centrality of of the silkworm uh, to to a situation in which you know what becomes the core of um, you know um, the central point of attention is rather the technical procedures, the fiber, mm -hmm. you know, and the and the fabric. Mm -hmm. um, would you say that this is also a shift from cosmology to technology? I think it's not that easy. I'm currently doing a comparison with my dear colleague Giorgio Riello, who is an expert in cotton production and how it changed the world in the, from the 16th century onwards. And uh, he's shifting interest to silk in a sense too. And we look at this relation of different materialities in different contexts. So uh, what I've learned really from him is that when you compare these treatises, then you see there is actually not much difference in the mm. content. All of these treatises describe the same mm. way. And this is also true for the entire Chinese chronology. So from a certain point of view, what they describe is always the same. The cycle of production, the way in which you actually produce a weavable thread, the way in which you degum the silk, so very technical things. But the way in which they frame it and why they want mm. to know it, this changes quite dramatically. Mm. So even with the cosmological framing that you find in, in the earlier text, you find a quite clear, excellent technical description of, of the processes of production or the processes of use, which is, I think, also a very important point. In some periods, production is really important. In other periods, the entire cycle 
of the silkworm from basically the, the food it needs, from the nutrition it needs, down to the final uses of the textiles are produced. And in others, just some instances are looked at. So two of the th things that you can see is that a, throughout all these periods, the idea of practices is quite central to this field, but how it is connected to people making claims about how valuable and what kind of knowledge that actually is and where it belongs in their society, this changes quite dramatically. And this is what I mean with the cosmological framing to the interest in the technology or the practices as such. So at some point, cosmology gets stripped off and it becomes a, the, the transmission of the practices becomes the major purpose of these writings which I think really uh, in, in the European context, as much as I've learned through this comparative research with my colleague, this is something that stands at the beginning of the European engagement with such themes. Interesting, yeah. And of course, one of the you know, uh, larger implications of that kind of historical narrative is that you are rewriting in many ways, the history of uh, imperial China. I mean, given that the, um, you know, you are introducing a technological and scientific perspective, uh, you know, dominant frameworks of historiography mm -hmm. and sinology certainly are largely dominated by a method of classification that relies to a very large extent on, you know, dynasties and dynastic periods, yeah. right? And I think one of the things that you were actually suggesting on Tuesday at your public lecture, if I understood you correctly, is that you, um, you know, a focus on, um, you know, what is going on at the level of existing forms of knowledge and technical procedures in a specific field, in your case is sericulture, may actually upset, uh, may actually uh, generate a new way of looking at history that does not necessarily overlap with, um, you know, the dynastic kind of framework. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of tempted to ask you, uh, of course, this is a major, a very important finding. And, you know, and I'm tempted to ask you about the larger implications of this finding. I mean, especially in relationship to, uh, you know, the, the broader field of mm -hmm. historical studies of technology and innovation. I mean, this mismatch between the pace of technology and the pace of dynastic history. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think this also really, uh, it, it connects to a couple of issues that are going on in the field of history of technology and science. Uh, I usually use, I should really say the term science as a kind of umbrella term right. for science, technology and medicine. I'm really coming out of the practical tradition more where you can see that people operate with terms such as the techno-sciences to show that practices and theoretical considerations always go hand in hand. There is also a great interest in uh, when you understand other cultures like Asia, what that means methodologically. And I think this is one really major concern for me too. A couple of historians of technology have embraced that with the term Asia as a method. Uh, I think what it actually means is not that one region should now turn into a new method, but that we should take serious what we learn from the history of other periods and be very careful what kind of uh, classifications and analysis we are doing. 
so that the gaze is not uh, dominated by the modern perspective, that it's not dominated by experiences that have been made in other periods in other areas. And I think an anthropologist and a sociologist would understand that very well. So these two trends, I think, um, speak very much to the current trend in the history of science and technology and medicine too. And to the necessity also to rethink, envisage our modern ideas about, think about the, the world as being one that has many scientific areas, but all what scientists do nowadays is working into and transdisciplinary. These are the most cutting edge fields in the sciences nowadays. So it shows us that people always struggle with classifications. They always try to, to find new configurations. And I think it's the historian's task to engage with these configurations seriously and to look at them as a possible source to understand what has historically happened or maybe also sometimes give us another perspective to the modern world. Right, yeah. You mentioned the term materiality mm -hmm. on a couple of uh, occasions in your responses. And, uh, you know, as an anthropologist, I'm very, very interested in materialities as well. And yeah. I think that one of the, the greatest uh, um, innovations of your research is methodological because you're not just looking at historical documents you know and it's not the kind of you know more conventional archival mm -hmm. research you're actually doing a lot of uh, research with uh, with artifacts mm -hmm. and and you're asking questions like uh, you know how can artifacts speak and uh, uh, you know, even asking questions, how can the silkworm, you know, speak, you know, it's just very sort of uh, familiar questions for people who are in the social sciences and humanities who are engaging with the material turn, with mm -hmm. the so-called material turn. Um, would you situate your research in relationship to this larger interest in humanities and social sciences towards issues in at the intersection of natural forces, material regimes, and systems of power. Would you kind of situate yourself in this kind of larger uh, trend? Absolutely, absolutely. The, and I think this is really also one of the hot topics that the historians really need to engage with more seriously, because different to the sociologists or the anthropologists, our sources are mostly deaf. Yeah, so whether we now analyze them through scientific or through historical means, there is only a certain selection of things that we can look at. We cannot go back at the scene and really understand what is, what is going on. A couple of years ago, there was a really very good roundtable at the Society for the History of Technology where Martin Collins reminded us all how material culture churn is connected to Marxism, to materialism, this materialism debate, but also to the material culture churn that has happened in museum studies. Um, so you could say that looking from a history of technology point of view into that, the, a theme that once has been very deterministic and socially laden, very difficult to interpret, has turned into a new chance to let objects speak or to think about this loaded term of non-human uh, non agency. So the way in which uh, humans 
impact their environment, how this plays out at one point as a material condition, a condition with consequences that they have not always thought through and that many people then at least reflect upon as if the materiality would have an agency on them because it forces them to do things that they cannot control themselves. That's, I think, a part of the, I wouldn't use the term agency, but it's the, a part of the, the materiality studies concern or the, the, this new trend that I think is very important to think about how the materiality that we have shaped also shapes us and how it talks back to us. And uh, then there is certainly this big topic um, that I'm only delving into because I think that in Asian studies, historically, it could have achieved more attention. So I hope that more researchers go into it, namely the non-human animals. So the question of how animals actually um, tell us a history in a way that makes us or in, in also participated in history in a way that we should consider more deeply. Right. Is it possible to write a history of sericulture from the perspective of the Silk War? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. That would also not be my uh, ultimate aim. But to consider that the sericulture seri worm, the sericulture, is, is the Silk Worm is a really great topic to see how um, humans engage with animals and turn it into an artifact. It's a very artificial system in which the silkworm can actually only maintain. You see it nowadays in that silk uh, is very difficult to produce in China, that uh, a lot of places have difficulties because of pollution, that it impacts the mulberry trees. All these kind of things are quite important. They throw another light on the animal actor in history. There are certainly much more obvious actors. Others would choose the horse, but we also know from nowadays science that the disappearance of the bees and the insects mm. is, a, is a substantial topic. So I hope that in, my re in due course of my research, also with new scientific methods, I can get a better grasp about the silkworms own materiality and how it shapes the human because the human accepted it yeah, or worked with it. How deep I can actually go depends a lot on the sources that I can find. Right. Yeah. You're not just studying materials mm -hmm. and um, non-human actors. You're also a collector. <laughs> right? You're also a collector. You are, and you collect many things, and one of them is you have been collecting local gazetteers. Yeah. Local gazetteers, which of course, for, uh, for those of you in the audience that do not know what local gazetteers are, they are basic sources of information yeah. on, uh, you know, local forms of knowledge and also technical procedures. They are local histories in a way. So you've been collecting thousands of local gazetteers and um, you have been scanning them and basically building a database uh, at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin. Mm -hmm. um, and as I understand, this is part of a larger research uh, theme 
on histories of planning. Could you tell us a little bit about this, uh, yeah. this local gazetteer project? I need to, s to uh, correct you a little bit because I'm not digitizing these sources myself. Rather, in, uh, at many places in the world, this genre of local gazetteers, so officials over actually from the ninth century up until the present day, writing local documenta documentation of the locality, collecting very pragmatically information about taxes, people, architecture, trying to explain to the next person who comes to the office what this place is like and which resources it actually has. So all these sources have been collected in different databases and what our database does, and it's not really a database, it's a system that tries to allow a person to look through these databases together and to understand how local materiality is created through this genre. You must imagine that an official, when he sat down every 20 years of uh, a compiler's team got together to compile this source, they had to go according to a structure. And so they looked at the previous text and then they looked what was there and then they wrote down uh, what they considered to be the result. Very interesting in the Chinese context, literati often or very, very quickly more adhered to the text and thus defined what the local materiality actually should be rather than only recording what was there. So they took a literature knowledge to define a locality's identity. We do that nowadays actually also quite often. We look at Hong Kong and we have our tour guide and we expect that this special building will be here, that the market will be here, and just that the turnover nowadays is probably for a lonely planet half a year, and then it was 20 years, and it was also meant to be very important. So I'm very interested in this, in this already present database as a possibility to understand how literature and materiality and the material identity of a place were connected or not. So the ultimate aim of this tool that we are building is to look on the one hand on the literature, but also to look at the materiality itself at the locality and uh, ask questions about what kind of knowledge was considered important, which impact did it had, how did people really maintain these structures, what did they consider to preserve, when did they admit to the fact that such issues uh, were no longer producible at this place because the resources were no longer accessible, the climate had changed, all these issues. And I think this is a very important because a lot of history of science research in, uh, in my field of expertise, so in China, concentrates on the elite and scholarly state view because many of our sources are from this elite and state view. These local gazetteers are certainly also, but they offer us a much more diversified view of a local perspective what these places actually are and what may have been to some extent also defined the everyday culture. Right, yeah, that's a great way to actually end this conversation. When are you going to back to Berlin? 
tomorrow, tomorrow unfortunately. Flying <laughs> tomorrow. Well, I, I wish you a good flight. So thank you. Thank you very much yeah. for having me. Thanks for watching. Uh, my name is Gonzalo Santos at the University of Hong Kong. What you just saw is the second episode of Technoviews, a new online platform broadcasting interviews with major scholars on topics at the intersection between technology, society and culture in Asia and the world.